Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 19, the second continuation of Exodus chapter 20. This evening we're going to continue our extensive study of what is popularly known as the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. Now last week we studied two controversial commandments, or more accurately translated, words, dabar. That of not using the Lord's name in vain and of the prohibition against making images and symbols of the Godhead or any false god for that matter. Now, I think we beat both of those subjects pretty much to death All right, last week, so I'm not going to review it. I do, however, want to make one comment regarding the use of the Lord's name. Now, I mentioned that it was not until a little before 300 B.C. that the Lord's formal name, which appears 6,000 times in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, stopped being uttered by the Jewish people. Yet there remains a serious misconception about that prohibition that needs to be considered. The Talmud makes it clear that the decision to stop saying or writing yud heh vav that's God's name, had absolutely nothing to do with the third commandment. Did you catch that? The writings of the sages and then rabbis from that era and for hundreds of years after did not think that to utter God's name was breaking the third commandment. Rather, they said it was an issue of proper reverence. Philo reports that in that same era it had become tradition that one should not call their parents by their names. So, says Philo, that same concept soon carried over to not calling the ultimate father by his formal name. A more common view that was around in Jesus' era was that uttering aloud the name of God violated the ordinance of Leviticus 24.15, which says, anyone who blasphemes his God shall bear his guilt. Okay. But the writers of the Talmud generally reject the notion that saying God's name is blaspheming. Okay. Rather, this idea that it long ago became wrong to say God's name because it violated the third commandment has become sort of a modern urban myth among the Jews. Instead, it had nothing to do with the third commandment. It had to do with a sincere attempt at reverence, proper reverence. So, what's the difference between the two, you might ask? What difference does it make? Well, it's a big difference. If it's thought that one is breaking the law, the third commandment, then to utter the name is a sin. Okay? If the issue is one of proper reverence, then it's more a matter of behavior. 
Okay. Not unlike the argument over whether it's, whether or not it's okay, say, to come to church in casual attire as opposed to your Sunday best. Proper reverence. Okay. Well, after all that, from last week, this week really doesn't get a whole lot easier. Alright, because the next commandment concerns the observance of Sabbath. Let's read Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the day, Shabbat, to set it apart for God. You have six days to labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat for Adonai, your God. On it, you're not to do any kind of work. Not you, your son, your daughter. Not your male or female slave, not your livestock. And not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates to your property. For in six days, Adonai made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why Adonai blessed the day, Shabbat, and separated it for himself. Well, the fourth word begins with, remember the day, Shabbat, to set it apart for God. It explains that the Sabbath, which is just English for Shabbat, is the seventh day of the week. And it tells us how we're to view the Sabbath, Shabbat, right? And then this command, this word, ends with this. This is why Yudhe-Vavhe, Yehovah, blessed the day, Shabbat, and separated it for himself. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to find ourselves examining more elements of the Sabbath because it's a hot button for sure among believers, and a topic of interest and importance throughout the Bible. Now, I want primarily to give you food for thought about the Sabbath, because whether or not Christians are supposed to observe the Sabbath has been hotly debated by reasonable and brilliant Bible scholars for centuries. And the debate continues. Now, two questions are at the heart of the matter about Sabbath observance, in my opinion. First, are the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20 for the church or not? And second, when and what is the Sabbath? Okay. Now, at the beginning of this lesson, I asked all of you a question. And that question was, do you believe all of the Ten Commandments are valid? And as I recall, unanimously, the answer was that the commandments were indeed valid and that we did not have the right to pick and choose. You may want to change your minds by the end of the night. In fact, I don't believe I've ever heard any Christian denomination say that the Ten Commandments, all of them, aren't for Christians. A copy of them usually hangs in every church in the land. So then why all the arguments about whether or not we're supposed to do what this fourth commandment says? Observe the Sabbath. 
I mean, a person recently gave me a teaching document they had received in which the point of the teaching was that Christians have been relieved of the duty to observe the Sabbath. But if that's the case, how is it that we can also easily say that we should obey the Ten Commandments? You see the problem we start to encounter here? See, this leads us to the second question of when and what is the Sabbath. Okay, Unless one has come to the conclusion that we have the right to ignore the fourth commandment, the fourth word of observing the Sabbath, and that Gentile Christians should have the nine commandments as our creed and not the ten, then I guess we need to know when and what the Sabbath is in God's view. Now, one of the standard points of a disagreement concerning the Sabbath is when the Sabbath occurs. Now, let's begin this thorny issue if seeing we can all agree on this much. There's seven days in a week. We okay so far? Okay. And there's only one seventh day of the week, each week, and there's only one first day, and one second day, and one third day, and so on. Now, all throughout written history, even before formal and official calendars, there's been a unit of time measurement called a week. Right? This consisted of seven sunsets and sunrises, each of which we call a day. It was relatively late in history before cultures started to give names to the days of the week. And of course, the names varied depending on the culture and the language. Now, prior to that, days were simply numbered. First day, second day, third day. Get the idea. The Hebrews to this day continue to use the numbering of days rather than the naming system of days, except, of course, when they come to the seventh day of the week, which has a formal name. And the formal name is Shabbat. Right. So, while calendars can and do differ over the thousands of years since they were first invented, amazingly, there's no disagreement on how many days there are in a week. And there is only but one or two rare instances in which the first day or the last day of the week are moved. All right. One such exceptional calendar is called the runic calendar, invented in the region of Sweden around the 13th century A.D. Okay. It was created in order to take into account the Nordic god and goddess system, but as Christianity was established, it then also began to incorporate within it Christian holy days. Well, other than for the runic and perhaps one or two very rare examples, all calendars from every region of the world have been in tune when it comes to the beginning and ending of weeks. Okay. One new exception, interestingly, as a modern standard initiated by the International Organization for Standardization, a group that was formed a few decades ago to develop international business and manufacturing standards. If anybody here is in manufacturing, you probably heard of the various ISO standards. Okay. They have decided that for business records keeping purposes, Monday is the first day of the week. 
The reason for their change is interesting. Since the Jewish Saturday, since the Jewish Saturday Sabbath and the Christian Sunday Lord's Day together form what in modern times we call a weekend in the Western world and are usually non-work days in the industrialized part of the world, the ISO decided that it was logical for business purposes to make the first work day of the week Monday their new standard is the first day of the week. Other than for what I've mentioned, I know of no situation, and believe me, I've dug, all right, where one calendar says this is the second day of the week, another one says, no, this is our fifth day of the week, or some such thing. Okay. Now, exactly when months and years begin, and when they end, have been argued about some. Okay, because they're based on seasonal or agricultural or lunar or solar cycles and there are some combination of the above. Okay, some cultures, including the Hebrews, adjusted their calendars occasionally by adding in an extra month or an extra days to the standard year occasionally to get, to get it in tune. However, other than for the two exceptions I quoted, there is no record of a culture adjusting the day of the week. That is, that for some reason the third becomes the fifth or something. The adjustments only occurred as regards how many days there were in a month or a year and when that month and year began and ended. Think about a leap year, for instance. Every fourth year, we adjust our, our calendars by one adding one day to the month of February. But do we have two Mondays in the week that happens? Or two Tuesdays or two Wednesdays? Of course not. We don't add an extra day to the week. We add an extra day to the month. And our seven days just keeps rolling. Okay? In other words, the amount of days there are in a month or a year is completely independent of how many days there are in a week. Therefore, what we call Sunday has for thousands of years and continues to correlate to the first day of the week. Okay. The seventh day, according to our modern method of naming rather than numbering days of the week, is Saturday. The point is, whatever issues have arisen over the centuries among denominations, Right. concerning the proper day for Sabbath observance has not involved difficulties or disagreements or changes in identifying which day is the seventh day of the week. Okay. God says in Genesis that all was created in six days and that on the seventh he rested. He also ordered that the seventh day was to be given a name, and that name was Shabbat, and that it was to be set aside to be observed as a holy day. When we come together on Sunday, we are obviously not observing the seventh day, this day whose name is Shabbat, the subject of the fourth word. Rather, we are observing a law enacted by Constantine in the Catholic Church in the fourth century AD, right? creating a day of Christian fellowship that was to be called the Lord's Day. This is not speculation. It's not criticism either. I'm just giving you well-documented fact. 
All right, acknowledged by historians and Bible scholars alike. Now, after our less than a week or two ago, in which I quoted some Catholic scholars concerning Sunday worship, someone came up to me afterwards and said, that really didn't interest them, because why would it matter to a Protestant what the Catholic Church thinks? Well, the fact is that almost all the major traditions present in the modern Catholic denominations, including Sunday worship, are of Catholic origin. We've been following Catholic edicts all of our church lives. We just weren't aware of it. The Lord's Day Sunday worship was created in honor of Christ's resurrection on the first day of the week. Though Christ's resurrection day, the first day of the week, is not ordained, in the Holy Scriptures as a weekly day of meeting, there's certainly no prohibition against it that I'm aware of. I mean, the church can meet on the first day or every day of the week if it chooses to. But the Lord's Day is simply not the Sabbath as defined by God in the Bible. And by the way, I just recently talked with a young local pastor in his 30s who within the past year graduated from Baptist Seminary. And what I just told you is exactly how he was taught. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not talking heresy here to you. Alright? The seminary students where he went were cautioned to always call the Sunday meeting day the Lord's Day and never call it Sabbath. Because Christians generally do not observe the biblical Sabbath. But he also related to me that when he asked why we don't observe the Sabbath, his professor told him that discussion would have to take place in private. And it never happened. Now I stand before you today not to tell you what to do in regard to Sabbath. nor to condemn the mainstream church, nor force my personal point of view on the matter upon you. However, if you do believe you're to follow the Ten Commandments, all of them, then the question we are all forced to face is, when is the Sabbath? If you're an evangelical Christian, then you are a member of a set of denominations that says unequivocally that the first day, Sunday, is not the Sabbath. I'm not saying it. They're saying it. But it is instead a day of traditional fellowship called the Lord's Day. And this is because church doctrine completely agrees that the biblical Sabbath is the seventh day. Saturday in modern terminology, not the first day. Now, as an example of this, On the Southern Baptist Convention's website called the Baptist Page is a decree concerning the basic doctrines of the Baptist Church. Under the heading, Doctrines Which We Hold in Common with Other Denominations, is a long listing of beliefs. The eighth doctrine down from the top is listed as follows. We meet in the sacred observance of the Lord's Day for his worship and his work. 
Okay? I mean, is any Bible scholar or theologian from any Christian denomination or from a Jewish sect for that matter will tell you the Lord's Day and the Sabbath are two different observances. The Lord's Day is not a new or modern or alternative name for Sabbath. There is no mention of the Sabbath being observed, at least by the Baptists, on the Baptist website. I don't tell you this to upset you or confuse you or worry you. Okay, I tell you this because of a key biblical phrase concerning the Sabbath, the seventh day. It's a day blessed by God. In fact, in other sections of the Bible, you'll find it says that those who observe the Sabbath will receive a blessing that those who don't won't. For no other reason than that, I urge you to go to God in prayer concerning the Sabbath and ask him directly what he wants to tell you about it. Now just a little bit more and we'll move on. The church, which has for centuries openly admitted that it is not observing the Sabbath, often responds to this glaring contradiction of how we Christians staunchly insist on the one hand that we believe in the validity of the Ten Commandments for our lives, but on the other that technically we do not observe the Sabbath. We deal with it by declaring that the Sabbath can be any day we choose if we choose to observe it at all. That is, the Sabbath can be the seventh day of any rolling seven-day period we choose. So if we choose to coincide our own chosen Sabbath with the Lord's Day, Sunday, all the better. The problem is, this this philosophy makes the Sabbath our Sabbath. Doesn't it? The fact is, nowhere does the Bible, Old Testament or New, declare anything but that the Sabbath is the Lord's Sabbath. It may be for our benefit, as Christ says, but it belongs to him. It's his. It's not ours. So let's address where the church belief comes from in the first place that we have the freedom to select our own personal Sabbath or disavow it altogether. Now, the way I'd like to approach this is first to tell you where it did not come from. Constantine and the Catholic Church never cited nor even implied a scriptural basis for for changing the Sabbath. In fact, they explicitly said that the Sabbath was to be abolished because it was a Jewish celebration. Okay. There was to be no more Sabbath keeping. Not for the Jews, not for the Christians, not for anybody in the Roman Empire. Rather, the church and state governments would choose the first day of the week, Sunday, as a more proper day of weekly meeting for Christians in particular with the reasoning that the first day of the week was the day of Christ's resurrection. And again, as explicitly stated in the records of that fateful series of church meetings called the Council of Nicaea, 
Sunday was chosen because it already was, throughout the Roman Empire, a day of meeting and worship for the largest and most influential group in the empire, the Mithraeans, sun worshippers, who had named the first day of the week after their deity, the sun god, hence the name, Sun Day. That's where it came from. Okay. The Catholic Church, on the other hand, says they do have the authority to abolish the Sabbath because the Pope has the authority from God to make such decrees. But Protestants who do not acknowledge the Catholic Pope's authority to do such a thing have taken a different route. The idea that Protestant individuals can choose to honor the Sabbath or not, and if we decide to choose any day we, choose, we want, change it as often as we'd like, essentially, is usually based on a much misunderstood couple of verses written by Paul in Colossians 2. Let's take a look at these verses in their context, and then I want to make a couple of points about it. Open your Bibles to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, and I'm going to read verses 16 through the end of that chapter. This is what the church hangs its hat on as, as telling us we can disregard it, the Sabbath. So don't let anyone pass judgment on you in connection with eating and drinking or in regard to a festival or Rosh Hodesh or a month or a Shabbat, okay, a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things that are coming, but the body is of the Messiah. Don't let anyone deny you the prize by insisting that you engage in self-mortification or angel worship. Such people are always going on about some vision they had, and they vainly puff themselves up by their worldly outlook. They fail to hold to the head with whom the whole body, receiving supply and being held together by its joints and ligaments, grows as God makes it grow. If along with the Messiah you died to the elemental spirits of the world, then why, as if you still belong to the world, are you letting yourselves be bothered by its rules? Don't touch this, don't eat that, don't handle the other. Such prohibitions are concerned with things meant to perish by being used, not by being avoided, and they are based on man-made rules and teachings. They do indeed have the outward appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed religious observances, false humility and ascetism, but they have no value at all in restraining people from indulging their old nature. There's an old story about three blind men who were guided up to an elephant. And their guide asked them to each to spread out around the elephant and each reach out and touch that elephant and then to describe from what they felt just what an elephant was. The first blind man who stood at the rear of the elephant reached up and by chance grabbed the elephant's tail. So he said an elephant was very much like a snake, long and slender. The second blind man stood in the front of the elephant, and when he reached out, he happened to grab the elephant's trunk. 
So he said an elephant was long and round, sort of like a fire hose. The third blind man wrapped his arms around the elephant's leg. So he said the elephant was like the trunk of a large tree. The moral of the story is that reality for humans is all about perspective and context. Okay. We have that same problem when we take selected verses out of the Bible and look at them without remembering that they're part of a whole. Okay. When we do that, our perspective will probably contain an element of truth in it, but the overall meaning is distorted. Okay. This is why I stress the principles that Yehovah have been establishing and we've been identifying all through our teachings in Genesis and Exodus. Because if we come across some scripture verses which, when removed from their context and held up as though they were standalone thoughts, okay, if these seem to contradict or violate any of those other principles, then we need to look again. Because we're misunderstanding the meaning of those verses. God does not contradict God. And let me tell you something else. The Old Testament doesn't contradict the New. Okay. Now, the debate over these verses in Colossians stem primarily from overlooking the basic principles Jehovah had long ago established. So by our taking a step back and looking at the Sabbath issue from a wider view, here's the questions we need to ask ourselves in order for us to rightly discern what it is that Paul is attempting to explain in Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Question number one, and perhaps the overriding question above all the others, does Paul ever contradict Christ? Question number two, did Paul ever disobey standard Jewish law of his era? Question number three, whose rules about eating and drinking festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, Sabbaths is being talked about in these verses of Colossians? Whose rules? First question, does Paul ever contradict Christ. Well, if we accept the traditional mainstream church doctrine that Shabbat is either abolished or optional or can be changed at our whim, we'd have to believe that he does contradict Christ. The problem is, if that's so, where does that put us? I mean, does that mean we're now left to decide between believing either what Yeshua says or what Paul says? No, of course not. Because Paul never contradicts Christ. I don't mean to be harsh, but if we have decided that Christ and Paul do contradict each other, why are we even here? I mean, let's just pack up and go home. All right? We, we can just use these nice pages for kindling. Okay. Look, we can slip and slide all over the place in deep pursuits of difficult scriptural truth. But most scriptural scripture is very straightforward and plain. Okay. Christ says explicitly in Matthew 5.17 do not think 
I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. We have in Torah looked at that scripture over and over again. Jesus said he did not abolish the Ten Commandments, the 613 laws, and certainly not any principle in Torah. And Yeshua goes on to say that not the minutest point, it's usually said not a jot or a tittle, will change until heaven and earth passed away. Well, here we are. And how in the world do we go right around and interpret a handful of difficult passages to mean that the Sabbath, which is the central theme of the Law and the Prophets, has been abolished, or that it's no longer the seventh day, or that we can make it anything we choose. So if Christ was telling the truth, then what has been erroneously taught as Paul's contention that virtually all of God's self-ordained memorials, including Sabbath, are abolished, are changeable, that can't be correct, can it? We can't have it both ways. This would be the classic example of a biblical contradiction. Worse, it would be a, pla a classic example of the disciple challenging his master. Christ can't say it's not changed and abolished, and then we have Paul turn right around and say, oh yes it is. And certainly that's not what Paul said. Next point, next question, as we work our way through it. Did Paul ever disobey the Jewish law? Well, if he actually did teach that the Sabbath is abolished, or that the God-breathed ordinances concerning Shabbat are no longer applicable, then he's not only disobeyed the Jewish law, but he's disavowed the very sign that God gave to Israel as for the covenant of Moses. And you, we like to argue today, follow me carefully on this, we like to argue today that while Jews, even if they believe in Christ as Messiah, may still be subject to the Torah, because they're Jews, certainly Gentile believers aren't. You know what, let's pretend for a moment that that was so. It still wouldn't apply to Paul, would it? Because he's a Jew. I mean, all these arguments are just going down the drain as fast as we can make them. So, did Paul disobey Jewish law and say that some things from the Torah were now abolished? Well, guess what? Paul says he didn't. He says, no, I didn't. In Acts 25, 8, Paul said to the Jews in Jerusalem, quote, I have committed no offense against the laws of the Jews. He goes on to say in Acts 28.17, I have done nothing against the traditions of the fathers. In other words, not only did he observe all the straightforward scriptural commands, he also obeyed the Jewish oral law traditions. No wiggle room here at all. There was no more important tradition and observance in Jewish law and life than Sabbath. The Sabbath and the temple were the centers of Jewish life. So if we're to believe Paul is running around telling his new converts, Jews and Gentiles alike, that they can just stop observing or change Sabbaths 
festivals and so on, then Paul is at the very least a very conflicted man. Okay, But he would also be committing an offense against Jewish law that carried the death penalty with it. And he would be contradicting the plain words of his Lord and Savior Yeshua who said, I did not abolish one jot or tittle of it. So assuming that Paul was being truthful in Acts, that he had never broken Jewish law or Jewish traditions, there is no way that we can construe what he said in Colossians as, as meaning that he's running around telling everybody that the Sabbath can be anything you want. Matter of fact, even abolished. If he did lie about not breaking Jewish law, just maybe so his ministry wasn't interrupted, then why should we believe anything he said? The answer is easy. Paul didn't lie. He never said Sabbath could be changed or abolished. In fact, in Hebrews 4.9, Paul said, so there remains a Sabbath keeping for God's people. Third question. Whose rules about eating and drinking and Sabbaths and new moons, etc., was Paul referring to in Colossians? Because if it's God's rules... Paul is saying to ignore it's one thing. But if it's man's rules about these sorts of things, it's an entirely different matter. Well, let's take a look at the context of Colossians 9, Colossians 2 rather, starting with verse 16. It states, so don't let anyone, any man, pass judgment on uh, on you. Verse 18, don't let anyone deny you the prize. Verse 19, people, they fail to hold on to the head. Verse 22, such prohibitions are concerned with things meant to perish by being used and they are based on man-made rules in teachings. Man-made rules in teachings. Not God-made. Are we to now think that Paul is saying that the laws of Torah were not given to Moses by God, but instead were man-made? No, of course not. That's not what he's saying. See, here Paul sets the context of this entire teaching. It is that these believers can ignore man-made doctrines if they choose, but most certainly not God's teachings. Remember, The Sabbath, the fourth word, is not a man-made tradition. Men didn't institute the Sabbath. God in the Torah instituted it. But men did add hundreds of rules about the Sabbath and about biblical feasts and new moons. And that, along with pagan rituals that often mimicked Hebrew rituals, is what Paul was condemning. Okay? What Paul was fighting, as Christ was fighting, particularly at the Sermon on the Mount, was the mountains of Jewish tradition that was being heaped on the people. And the now commonplace in his day, remember we're talking about the Roman Empire, this commonplace melding together of various pagan traditions with the Jewish traditions, Because at this time in history, 90% of the Jewish population lived scattered throughout the Roman Empire. 
and had the greatest interest in being tolerant and accepted by their Gentile neighbors. These traditions and observances, in many cases, flat out replaced Holy Scripture. Members of various Jewish sects had even taken to following Paul around on his travels, trying to recruit his new converts into the various Jewish messianic sects, or as we would call them now, denominations, that had quickly sprung up. Okay? And each of them had their own set of do's and don'ts, what you can eat, what you can't, just exactly how you're to celebrate the Sabbath, how you're to celebrate new moons, so on and so forth. The most minute details of their lives were being controlled by volume after volume, literally thousands of man-made rules, all said to be explaining scripture, when in fact, so many of these doctrines and rules were simply replacing scripture. So Paul is not railing against God's Torah in Colossians. He is condemning and specifically says man-made rules. Ha! Ah, but there does seem to be one final out for the Gentile church. There are those who would say, yes, yes, that's all fine. But the Sabbath is for Israel, not for Gentile believers. For you, I have two things I'd like you to consider. First, the ten words were indeed given to Moses and Israel. But since that's so, why do you and the church system in general regard them as valid for the Gentile church? I mean, isn't that just a tad schizophrenic? Second, I'd like to quote Paul in Galatians and Ephesians, where he goes right to the heart of that matter. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were to Abraham and to his seed. Here is just one of dozens of places in the Bible, Old Testament and New, that establishes that all the promises, the covenants, God would give, he gave to Abraham and or to his seed. Nobody else. So who's Abraham's seed? Israel, the Hebrews, Abraham's descendants. So since that's the case, then how can others and I, by the way, claim that we as Gentile Christians are mysteriously part of that same group such that we get all the benefits and are subject to all the principles of Israel's covenants. Well, here's the answer to that. In Galatians 3, 26 through 29, you don't have to go there. I'm going to read it to you. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For in union with the Messiah, you are all children of God through this trusting faithfulness. Because as many of you as were immersed into the Messiah have clothed yourselves with the Messiah, in whom there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female. For in union with the Messiah, Yeshua, you're all one. Also, if you belong to the Messiah, you 
are seed of Abraham and heirs according to the covenant, uh, to the covenant, to the promise. Yeah, Amen is right. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Again, don't go there. I'll just read it to you. Therefore, remember your former state, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised by those who merely because of an operation on their flesh are called the circumcised. At that time, you had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants embodying God's promise. You were in this world without hope, without God. But now you who were once far off have been brought near through the shedding of the Messiah's blood. We simply cannot get around it. We Gentile believers are made seed of Abraham by means of having been joined to Israel's Covenants, and Paul plainly says so. And we're joined to Israel's covenants, not by circumcision, but by means of our faith, our trust in the Savior, Yeshua. Okay, We Gentiles by birth, foreigners, have been brought in to Israel's covenants. That's how we're able to partake of the blessings of them, Paul's just finished saying. Now, Does that make us physical Jews? Of course not. Because once again, we see this awesome duality of Jehovah's universe appear. There is a physical side and a spiritual side to God's dealing with men. When Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither male nor female, that certainly doesn't mean that the physical world has suddenly become Unisex, does it? Or that there, I mean, that, that there is no more anatomical distinction between the sexes if you're a Christian, and that there's no more race of the Jews, or that Gentiles have become Jews, or vice versa. I mean, just our observation around of the world tells us that. Okay, but on the spiritual level, Christ broke. All distinction in heaven, in the spirit world, among people, no matter what that distinction had been. Color, race, sex, nationality, rich or poor, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. And remember what the Bible says. When he says Jew or Gentile, he just described the two divisions of the world, didn't he? God says, I hereby divide the world into two groups, Hebrews and everybody else. From a spiritual point of view, Jehovah sees all believers as bonded, grafted, adopted into the promises he gave to Israel by means of our trusting Christ, our union with Jesus. See, we're not grafted into Christ. Our union or our faith with Christ grafts us into the covenants of Israel. That's the grafting. So, why does the Sabbath apply to us? Because we're part of Israel. Spiritual Israel, not physical Israel. Some of us are part of spiritual, uh, physical Israel, by the way. 
Paul calls spiritual Israel the Israel of God. We believers get the benefit of and are subject to all the spiritual principles of the Torah, but not necessarily all the Hebrew cultural rituals. Okay, Christ's Sermon on the Mount was mainly about two things. Discounting the traditions of men and reaffirming the principles behind the law that had been obscured by the traditions of men. Okay. Yehovah says the Sabbath is an eternal spiritual principle. It is virtually woven into the very fabric of the universe. And now its benefits belong to everyone who trusts Christ. And God established a particular day as the weekly Sabbath. He blessed it. He made it holy. Now let me say that again. Sabbath is a God-established day. It's not a man-established day. It was not established by tradition. The Sabbath may be for man, but it's not of man. Christ's death was for man, but it was not of man. We can't anymore change the terms of the Sabbath then we can change the terms of our redemption. Okay. Frankly, I'm not even sure what all the consternation is about All right, when it comes to recognizing that we ought to observe God's Sabbath. Observing the Sabbath isn't difficult. It doesn't mean you have to give up Sunday church or that you've got to do church twice, once on Saturday and once on Sunday. It can be as simple as on Saturday, stopping your regular work, focusing your family on Yehovah and his word, and relaxing and enjoying one another. All right, Reveling in this day of physical and spiritual renewal. Sabbath is a very family-oriented day. You don't have to eat special food. You don't have to recite specific prayers. You don't have to wear a prayer shawl. Okay. But if you'd like to, you have perfect freedom to do that. And there are many beautiful traditions about it. You don't have to stay home, and you don't have to turn off the TV. But if you feel that's the direction that God's leading you to, then you have perfect freedom to do it. I don't know anyone who observes the Sabbath who won't tell you that their lives have been blessed and that they and their families are all the better for it. Okay. Whatever you decide to do, just please remember this. The Sabbath is not a salvation issue. Particularly in the sense that Sabbath observance plus trust in Messiah is what saves. Because it's only trust in Yeshua and nothing else from which we get our redemption. Not any observance. Whether you observe the Sabbath or don't, it, it really has no bearing on your eternal security. And I'm also not telling you to stop going to church or Bible study on Sundays. You know, the biblical Jews met several days during the week. First day, fourth day, and seventh day Shabbat were kind of typical for meeting for gathering together. What I'm telling you is that Sunday church 
what we call the Lord's Day and the Shabbat are two different days and two different observances. One is a man-made tradition that never existed prior to the 4th century AD, and one is God-ordained, ordained upon the creation of the world. It's a tad older. Okay? I'd like to end this discussion on Sabbath by reading to you Isaiah 56, 1 through 7. Don't turn there, just, just listen. Just listen. Isaiah 56, 1 through 7. Here is what Adonai says. Observe justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close to coming my righteousness to being revealed. Happy is the person who does this, anyone who grasps it firmly, who keeps the Sabbath and doesn't profane it and keeps himself from doing evil. A foreigner joining Adonai should not say, well, Adonai will separate me from his people. Likewise, the eunuch shouldn't say, I'm only a dried up tree. For here's what Adonai says, as for even the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant, in my house, within my walls, I will give them power and a name greater than sons and daughters. I will give him an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to Adonai to serve him, to love the name of Adonai and to be his workers. All who keep Shabbat and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayers for all peoples. This isn't going to be the last time we discuss the Sabbath because we're going to be running into it again over and over in the Torah. Okay, that'll do it for tonight.